when I first came out of this, uh, this coma and was trying to get my right bearings for my brain, all is well is what I said. And in many ways, that's the deepest lesson. All is well and always will be so. But we can come to know that by going within. And also realize for every one of your listeners that the most fundamental message of this is that love is what binds us all together. And I came back from my journey realizing that uh, that love, the best way to manifest it, show it, and, and dwell in it, bathe in it, enjoy it, is to be it. Welcome to the Deconstructions Podcast, everybody. We're your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock. And I am John Williamson. And we're going to have to tell you right up front, there's some meat in this one. Public service announcement right Do here. not operate heavy machinery. Don't drive uh, your race car. No. Don't hold babies when you're listening to this one because you might drop it. Crane operation is a contraindication <laughs> to listening to this episode. This one was... Uh, this was an interesting one. So this is the first of our, um, we didn't do a month long series this year. We just did a two parter of, of kind of Halloween esque themed, uh, episodes. And so we wanted to get something uh, a little different this year. So last year, obviously we did, um, you know, a couple episodes on hell or few, um, one episode on the devil yep. and, and try to kind of theme it in there, uh, for, for Halloween. So this year we decided to, uh, to do something a little bit different. So this week, um, is going to be kind of unique. Um, this is a guy that I, I came across. Um, actually, one of my former bosses handed me an article about this guy before his, before his first book came out. Oh, wow. And so we have with us this week uh, Dr. Eben Alexander. Yes. Um, this guy has a fascinating story. Oh. Now, like, let me, let me uh, give, a, give a, like a precursor here uh, by saying... I, I don't know where I stand on this sort of thing, right? So this guy had um, what he describes as a near-death experience. NDE. NDE. And so I don't know. Like, I want to believe it, uh, but there are too many stories out there that seem awfully convenient. You know, like the little boy whose dad happens to be a pastor of a mega church who, who dies and sure. visits heaven. It's like, huh, sure. seems convenient, you know? Yeah. I'm not saying it's not real. No, no, no. I'm just saying no, it seems convenient. No, we, li- we live in a, a skeptical age. Sure. And one of the biggest mysteries that we are trying to master, yeah, um, because we're all about mastery, <laughs> yep. you know, um, is, you know, life after death. Yeah. And anybody that can say that they've got a little window into that, I mean, you got yourself a cottage industry right there. You, you're sure. Take that to the bank. So the reason that I found this one to be so unique is that uh, Dr. Uh, Eben Alexander um, is a... Uh, or was rather now he, he does a lot of speaking engagements, but he was a um, an active practicing neurosurgeon for over twenty five years. Harvard neurosurgeon. Harvard educated, yeah. I mean, let's just okay. Let's see, uh, yeah, fifteen years at the Brigham Brigham and Women's Hospital, Children's Hospital, and Harvard Medical School in Boston. Yeah, uh, with a passion interest in physics and cosmology, um, and so he came out with this book called Proof of Heaven. Uh, he came out with a second book called The Map of Heaven, and now he's got a new book called Living in a Mindful Universe that's coming out uh, uh, fairly soon here. Actually, I think the week that this episode drops. Yep. Um, it's just called a, a Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Heart of Consciousness. 
And the reason that I thought, okay, this this would be a really interesting one um, to talk about is because not only is this guy a Harvard-educated neurosurgeon, uh, but but what makes this one particularly interesting is the way that this guy had this near-death experience. Right, which we definitely get into a little bit in the episode, but it's... Very interesting, yeah. Oh, my gosh. The, the guy being an atheist uh, for all intents and purposes. Yeah. Going to the experience and then... Um, trying to make sense of what happened, uh, you know, in his personal circumstance and being a neurosurgeon. So he's an expert on, on the what's brain. going on in the brain. So like everybody who, uh, all the naysayers say, you know, it's just chemicals reacting in your brain as your brain shuts down. Yeah. Uh, hi, you know, hi, hypoxia, I think, you know, like a lack right. of oxygen to right. the brain. Right. But in order for that to happen, you need a functioning neocortex. Right. Which and, he did not have. Which he did not have. Which is uh, evidential. Like we uh, there's, there's proof of that. Right. In his data. So you at least have to consider it um, and say, okay, something weird happened here. And there's something different about, now yeah. they're going to get in, there's something different right. about just the way that he even talks yeah. about all of this. And he ties together faith and he ties together, you'll, you'll hear he talks about other uh, subjects and other fields. Um, consciousness. Consciousness. Um, uh Shoot, quantum mechanics. He yep. pulls in um, uh, the contemplative practices, which is like, by and large, what his new book is about. Yeah, dude, it's so good. There's so much meat here. That's why we have to issue the public service announcement. Do not operate heavy. I mean, literally, this is probably, it might be the densest episode we've ever done. Yeah, this guy's obviously brilliant. And you but live. Oh, man. Like, there's not going to be a point where you're going to be bored. No. You know, this is not, uh, the, you know, who's the guy that does like the Visine commercial? What's his name? Oh, uh, oh, Ben Ben Stein. Yeah, Ben Stein. It's not like listening to Ben Stein give a lecture on uh, near death experience. This he's lively, he's brilliant, he's accessible, he's charismatic. You're really gonna love this. We'll just let you experience. It. And he rocks a bow tie like nobody's yeah, business. He does. <laughs> yeah, he does. So let's let him have it. Let's let him have it. Without further ado, Doctor Eben freaking, freaking Alexander. Alexander. Dr. Alexander, welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. We are really excited to hear about your story and a lot of the work that you've been doing. So thanks for taking some time to be with us this evening. Well, Adam, John, thanks for having me here. It's uh, great to be with you. Well, uh, one of the reasons we were, we were talking about this before we started to record, but one of the, the, the main reason we just we really wanted to get you on here is you have a fascinating uh, story. Before we get into that and, and, of course, get into talking about your latest book, um, Tell people a little bit about your your um, your profession, your career, and and, uh, and and what you do for a living. Okay, well, I spent the first fifty four years of my life kind of honing my um, conventional scientific worldview. I worked as a neurosurgeon and uh, had spent uh, more than fifteen years uh, as an associate professor at Harvard Medical School, and really thought I had some idea of how brain, mind, and consciousness work. And then all that was completely tipped over on its uh, head uh, in November 2008 when I came down with a, a very aggressive and rapidly progressive case of gram-negative bacterial meningitis that took me from symptom onset with severe low back pain, severe headache, to going into seizures and coma within about three and a half hours. And then I spent the next seven days 
in coma, uh, very deep. My doctors estimated when I first got to the emergency room, and I was already in coma and seizing at that time, uh, but once they determined I had a gram-negative bacterial meningitis, they estimated my survival probability at about 10%. Uh, and then the next day, they found out I had a gram-negative uh, E. coli meningitis. And E. coli meningitis almost always happens in newborns. So my doctors were very kind of shocked by this. They never came up with any explanation of how I acquired this illness. Uh, and then I spent the next week in a coma without any positive signs in terms of my neurologic exam. And by Sunday morning, the seventh day of coma, they recommended to my family just stopping the antibiotics because they estimated I'd gone from a 10% chance of survival down to 2%. And what they attached to that little 2% probability if I actually survived was that I would never really wake up, that there was way too much evidence of, of brain damage to my neocortex. I'd already been in coma for a week due to a gram-negative uh, bacterium. Uh, and, and that's not the kind of patient that makes any kind of meaningful recovery. So they were very shocked when I started coming back to this world. But I just confirmed that their, their estimates of my neurologic damage were right in the right ballpark. Because when I first came back to this world, all my words and language, all of Evan Alexander's personal memories, um, all of my semantic knowledge of brain-mind consciousness, personal memories from uh, 54 years of life, uh, every bit of it was gone completely, uh, and that that was the to them no surprise. But of course, what did shock them was how rapidly everything came back. My words and language literally came back over a few days. My childhood memories over several weeks. All of my semantic knowledge, things like physics, cosmology, neuroscience, neurosurgery, every bit of that, and all my personal memories, every bit returned by about eight weeks after coma. And that's the part that my doctors to this day would tell you is absolutely inexplicable. Uh, they would insist this was a miraculous uh, recovery, which uh, to me simply means that we have a lot more to learn about healing. And that's where I think that these kind of cases, like in the NDE world, you hear a lot about miraculous healing. Um, and it's because spiritual healing is right at the core of any kind of fundamental healing. So it's no, it should be no surprise that this is where we encounter these incredible uh, cases of healing. And, you know, I have the spiritual journey that I talk about in Proof of Heaven uh, in great detail um, that I'll just briefly uh, summarize here. Yeah, it all started in a course, unresponsive, uh, earthworm eye view realm. Uh, and then I was ushered from that up into a brilliant ultra-real gateway valley, um, which was lush and alive with life, kind of like Plato's world of forms. Everything just perfect and ideal. Uh, lots of souls dancing between lives and this beautiful girl on the butterfly wing that I describe uh, in detail in Proof of Heaven and why she was so important. Uh, and then, but that was only a stepping stone in the journey because uh, the angelic choirs above that were providing this incredible uh, joy and merriment festivities, all the dancing of souls down below and all that, um, fueled yet another uh, portal into higher and higher levels, all the way out to what I call the core, infinite inky blackness, but filled to overflowing with that infinite healing power of, of that divine love of the creative source of the universe. And uh, in that core realm, being taught many lessons about uh, the nature of reality, much of which we go, I, I went into some of that in Proof of Heaven, but uh, a lot more in presentations and also in our new book, Living in a Mindful Universe, it comes out October of 2017, 
uh, where Karen Newell, my uh, life partner, and I uh, go into a lot more of what this all really means about evolving notions of consciousness and the nature of reality. Uh, but I really went through a fundamental shift in my belief system that in many ways parallels what our modern scientific world is going through in trying to address the mind-body question and the relationship between brain and mind and the fundamental nature of consciousness itself. Wow. I, I, I recall reading your book uh, a couple years ago. It's actually almost the anniversary of when, when I read it. I was on vacation and uh, was just fascinated by by your account of what had happened to you. And I, I'd like to go back a little bit to something you said about uh, the state of your brain uh, when, this, when this happened. And I, I think one of the remarkable things um, that, that you point out in your first book is the fact that um, a lot of the people who you know, are kind of um, uh, skeptical about near-death experiences you know, say that it, it's just your body shutting down, it's chemicals creating hallucination. But the one thing that you point out in your book is that you need uh, a functioning neocortex. Is that right? That is correct. Uh, that's why I get uh, asked to give talks to medical audiences around the world is because they recognize that impossibility. Uh, as do many uh, uh, physicians who have gone through my medical records. In fact, Dr. Bruce Grayson has just uh, completed a review of my medical records uh, by three independent physicians uh, to try and get some other kind of understanding of it and simply confirmed uh, the amount of damage to my neocortex. That uh, My neurologist, they, there were two neurologists who worked with me during my illness, and they were both shocked <clears throat> that I could make any recovery at all, and especially that I ended up making a full recovery. And, and they cooperated very much with Dr. Grayson in this review of my medical records, which will be published, we think. We're not, we're not sure yet. It's uh, The British Medical Journal is considering it for a case report, although it, it uh, has not yet uh, fully passed muster on their peer review process. But uh, Dr. Grayson... Um, has reviewed several uh, NDE cases, medical records like Anita or Johnny's and mine, uh, just to try and get to some of these deeper answers about the healing that we see there, because it really is extraordinary. And as physicians, as doctors, uh, if we paid more attention to this kind of healing and could learn some lessons from it, uh, it would greatly enhance our ability to heal patients. Oh, that's remarkable. Amazing. So, um, Kind of going back to kind of your experience when you when you first became aware uh, that you were in another place, and you said you started out in this this area that you you refer to as the earthworm earthworm eye view. I know you mentioned that you you didn't seem to really have a sense of time. Um, right. it, it, did you ever have a sense while you were having this experience that you know uh, of recognition of other other beings or potentially relatives while you were there? Well, an interesting. Uh uh, kind of feature of my NDE that's quite atypical for NDEs is that I was amnesic, that I was completely amnesic. I mean, all words and language, any kind of memory of personal experience as a human being living in this universe on this planet, every single bit of that was completely eradicated uh, during the entire experience. Um, and, and that does make it unusual because most NDEs do not have that quality. Now, of course, initially, in coming back from this experience, I had never really paid much attention to the NDE literature, so uh, I didn't realize how uh, commonly uh, people experience this uh, sense of ultra-reality. They talk about how it's impossible to describe the events, and a lot of that is because the normal 
filtering mechanism of, of the brain is no longer there. Uh, so we have these extraordinary experiences with very broad contact with that universal mind, uh, and that's what makes them so difficult to explain. Now, the other thing, of course, is as a neurosurgeon, before my coma, I kind of bought into the general conventional neurosurgical party line and neuroscientific party line that the physical world is all that exists and that somehow you've got to explain consciousness as a production of the physical brain itself. And that's where my experience was so absolutely contrary to um, everything that I thought I understood about brain, mind, and consciousness. And that is that as my neocortex was progressively dismantled by this aggressive and primitive bacterial infection, in fact, what happened to my conscious awareness was it expanded to much greater levels. Uh, I, I was completely freed up from this illusion of the here and now uh, and, and exposed to uh, even kind of the incredible sensation of having the whole higher dimensional multiverse that had collapsed down all of infinite dimensional space and eternity into this complex oversphere. And part of the lessons in that core realm where I experienced that oversphere uh, were my becoming identical with that universe. I mean, you cannot remotely put this kind of experience into anything that uses our human language to communicate and actually convey anything of what the experience was like. Uh, and that's why so much of my work now is helping people to get there, because I came to realize that you don't have to wait to be smote down by some bacterial meningitis or have an NDE, that any conscious being can come to know the reality of all of this by going within. And that's why so much of my current effort, and as it has been for the last seven years or so, uh, and that's work with Karen Newell, my life partner and my co-author on our new book, Living in a Mindful Universe, that comes out October 17th, 2017, uh, is all about going within. Uh, because as we uh, come to experience that consciousness in a much broader sense, we can come to realize that we are eternal spiritual beings. But you don't think your way into knowing that with our little uh, linguistic brain and our rational, logical mind using modern science and philosophy to try and work our way to that knowing. We must come to it through direct experience. But uh, as I said, the good news is any one of us as a conscious sentient being can do that through a, a form of meditation. And that's why I do all the work with Karen, sacred acoustics, uh, and uh, meditation workshops that we present to the world. Dr. Alexander, loving your new book, um, really digging into this mindful universe thing, and I think it's so appropriate for a lot of the people on our podcast. A lot of the people in our podcast have um, been coming from different life experiences in terms of um, the spiritual and the religious, and we call it the Deconstructionist Podcast because we're constantly challenging our biases and the way we thought we, you know, see things. As the old phrase goes, you know, we we don't see the world, you know, as it is, we th see the world as we are, you know, there's, right. you know, the biases that we bring to it. And, and one of the things that I love that you're diving into in this book, you know, you being this neurosurgeon, Harvard educated, highly rational, logical, then have this immersive, unbelievable experience. And you come away with uh, new conceptual furniture. You come away with new ways of understanding and continuing to dive into understanding. A lot of this, um, to us in our journey here sounds like it overlaps, you know, the ideas of consciousness and, and, and mystical. A lot of us, um, especially Westerners, you know, Americans, um, are, are overly rational and, and tend to think about even like religious, spiritual things in an overly rationalistic way. And I'm wondering how your experiences and your 
your experiences of what consciousness is dovetail into the spiritual as a mystical experiential um, experience? Well, uh, you bring up many uh, very interesting points. And I think uh, one thing I'll point out from the outset is one of the greatest commodities in this enterprise by a long shot is true open-minded skepticism. Mm. That is where the action is. Uh, And I would say that what this discussion is really all about, it's about the mind-brain relationship or what's called the mind-body question. And that's something that's been around for at least 2,500 years or more, uh, back to the times of Plato and Aristotle. Mm. And and that discussion is one where you could try and frame up the various uh, solutions to the mind-brain relationship along a linear uh, spectrum that would extend from one pole, and that would be the pole of materialism or physicalism. That is the conventional notion, like I had before my coma, that the physical world is all that exists, and therefore somehow you have to explain the workings of consciousness as some kind of epiphenomenon of all those subatomic uh, uh, electrical fluxes and chemical reactions in the brain. And uh, then you've got all along this uh, spectrum of possibilities for the mind-brain relationship, you have all the dualisms, all the various positions that admit that you cannot explain the mind by the workings of the brain alone, which uh, pretty much everyone who's deeply into studying the brain sooner or later comes to realize is you cannot explain consciousness by the physical workings of the brain. Um, but they all, all the dualistic positions admit to some degree that you've got to have a component of mind as well as component of brain, that is the physical universe, and then you're trying to talk about their relationship. And then as you go all the way along that spectrum to the other end, you get to where I think the answer actually lies. But it's the furthest from the position of physical science, and it's really the position that uh, the founding fathers of quantum physics urged us all to move towards. And that's a position of metaphysical or ontological idealism, which basically says that consciousness and mind or the phenomenal experience is the only thing that exists in the universe. And that that consciousness or mind projects all of the apparent physical universe out there for us as a stage on which this beautiful drama can unfold. But it's really, uh, and and the reason I brought that up earlier about the open-minded skepticism is, from my point of view, when you really open your mind to all these possibilities and we're trying to explain all of human experience, not just some teeny little subset uh, that we can structure in a laboratory setting and pretend we understand, but we're really trying to explain all of human experience. And that's where that open-minded skeptic, the first position you reject is outright uh, insanity, is the materialist position. Uh, and, and that is where I think Karen and I really take this world in a favorable direction in living in a mindful universe, because uh, we're really trying to help people to realize that and to, to get back to you know first principles. What can any human being know about their existence and about the nature of reality? And you have to start kind of where Rene Descartes started. You know, I think, therefore, I am. Uh, and starting with that position, uh, we can then actually make much more sense of this if we come at it from an idealistic position where uh, that conscious experience is the thing that exists. Uh, in fact, I can tell you that when you develop it more, uh, as we do in living in a mindful universe, you then just start to adopt 
uh, such modern scientific principles as filter theory, where you realize that the brain is not the producer of consciousness, but only a filter that allows in various states of conscious awareness that are very limited. And you can argue that they're loosely based on uh, an, an objective physical world that exists out there, but quantum physics keeps telling us in no uncertain terms that there is no such objective uh, physical universe existing out there independent of mind. Uh, but when you start to open up to a broader conceptualization of all this, we can look at things like filter theory where that consciousness is primordial, you know, that God consciousness that exists that we're each and every one of us is a part of. But then that's where our religious systems kind of lead us astray sometimes because especially in the West, our religious systems try and tell us you cannot be one with God. And of course, your ego could never be one with God, but that doesn't mean that your conscious awareness uh, could not be one with the divine creative source of all that creates this universe. Uh, so it really is a much broader kind of opening of the mind-body relationships. And I would say that, it, in, in fact, our century-long struggle trying to understand quantum physics will never come to any kind of useful uh, fruition until we start to accept consciousness as fundamental and accept uh, metaphysical idealism is the proper philosophical position for understanding the world. And the reason that's so valuable to each and every one of us as a human being is that it opens very widely the role that our higher soul and the free will of our higher soul can play in manifesting the reality of our dreams. Uh, when you come to understand this far richer view of how the world might work that is based in all the evidence. And so I think that's a crucial thing for people to get is uh, this takes a much broader worldview and an opening up of our minds um, to something that, that, that transcends that simplistic little illusion that Karen and I refer to in our book uh, as the supreme illusion. And that is that any human being, you sit there looking out at this world and thinking all that stuff is out there, but never, ever forget that what you're experiencing is an internal model. It's a model within the mind that we assume represents something that should be out there. But the mistake is in believing that the something out there is an objective physical world. It's never been anything but a projection from mind itself. Mind is absolutely fundamental, just as quantum physics has been trying to tell us for a very long time. And only by fully accepting that and running with this notion of metaphysical idealism uh, and exploring where that really takes us, uh, combined with things like filter theory and uh, other uh, notions of connecting brain and mind, that's where we really start getting, making some headway in understanding all this. When the words have finally run out, I shall place these hands upon this mouth for talking men distant alive. So I'd rather be quiet. Oh man, I love so much about this. We're just going to pause so everybody can just take a breath though. Because <laughs> that was mind-blowing. Okay. There's, there's a lot to it. And, and this is, we often, Karen and I often say that uh, this is really about a synthesis of science and spirituality. Yes. Uh, because the last thing in the world here that's going to be helpful is some chaotic, mechanistic, mechanistic, uh, 
you know, a no-God solution, because that is wrong. That's not the way this universe works. But maybe it's just a redefining how we understand God and God's influence and how we all relate with that God. Yes. That uh, I think it's more meaningful understanding of, of our lives and of this entire existence. And that's really where this is all headed. Mm, you are speaking our language. You are speaking our language, Evan. So well, good. Um, I love so many things about this. I'm going to try to boil this down to a one or two part question here. So you said, you you know, you cannot explain consciousness as the physical workings of the brain. Consciousness is something that I I can just never quite stop thinking about. It's a, it's a mystery. I feel like it, you know, it, it contains the seed of everything that's important in life. Consciousness is this thing. It's like a splinter in my mind. I'm always thinking about what is it? And I would just love to get, if you could give us kind of a quick lay definition, like if consciousness is not just, firing neurons and synapses and chemicals and if consciousness is not just the inner workings of the brain if it's not just a feedback loop that we become more and more you know i guess aware of or you know or whatever then what is consciousness what would be your definition of what consciousness well, is? i would say that consciousness is the thing that exists there really is nothing else existing anywhere in this universe except consciousness itself And so the way as an individual you can look at this is to realize that your consciousness is the thing that exists, that your free will can have tremendous power. Um, And and for the neuroscientists out there uh, to try and jump right to the the answer, because they'll be wondering about this connection between brain, mind, and consciousness, I would simply say that your consciousness exists and only can consist with certain uh, physical states of your brain. And so, in fact, it's, uh, you know, we know in quantum physics that, uh, you know, there's something called the superposition of states. That is, for example, that the position or momentum of a subatomic particle, um, you know, can have a range of values, but never can you pin it down at any one moment in time to have an absolutely defined position and an absolutely defined uh, momentum. And that's where the action is, because in the brain, which neuroscientists will admit is where they think this consciousness thing is occurring. You've got to remember that, that according to our modern neuroscience, that all of that conscious experience that you're having is nothing more than ion fluxes, um, you know, ions flowing through very small channels where their spatial uh, confinement is uh, pretty much uh, very tight. And it's by confining those of uh, particles that have so much to do with uh, how consciousness works, by confining them spatially, we open up the momentum vector. And that's a very important concept. It's basically Heisenberg's uncertainty principle at work throughout the subatomic uh, micro-reality of the brain that is then giving us all of this conscious experience. But then you take it another step further and realize that the brain and the body are also within the model that's constructed within mind. And and when you go to that level, you start to realize how conscious experience itself can be what dictates everything else that occurs through this this brain thing and uh, certainly dictates the physical states that we'll find if we look at the brain. And we'll find that those states correspond with only certain conscious experience, that you can't just have any conscious experience, but the conscious experience dictates what those uh, superposable states are. Uh, I know it, it, it can get a little mind-boggling, and sometimes I get a headache when I go too far. <laughs> the bottom line 
is quantum physics is absolutely at the core of this. And it has everything to do with how that conscious observer witnesses their unfolding reality. And we do it through this physical system of the brain and the physical universe. But again, don't ever think that any of that exists independently of the conscious observing mind. Now, one other point that I would stress is your consciousness is not the little thoughts in your head. The little thoughts in your head, uh, you know, the voice of your ego, the linguistic brain, uh, which is also, of course, the voice of science and region, uh, sorry, of uh, logic and rational thought, um, that little voice is not your consciousness at all. Uh, as a neurosurgeon, I can tell you it's little more than a parlor trick. There are two regions in the brain that are most responsible for production and reception of speech. There are some other areas uh, in the brain that have to do with that internal mind chatter that uh, become active independently of you know, our spoken voice and our reception, what we hear of speech through the ears. Uh, but the bottom line is they, they are not your consciousness. Your consciousness, the deep mystery uh, faced, whether you're talking about the measurement paradox in quantum physics or the uh, hard problem of consciousness is the observer. And that is what you can develop in deep meditation, that awareness that can take a little helicopter view of the little voice in your head, see the little petty concerns of the ego uh, as nothing more than that. But the consciousness itself, and this is the part that becomes far greater when you leave your physical body once and for all, when you die, uh, is that observer self. And of course, that's what near-death experiencers have been trying to say for thousands of years. If they become far more aware, that world is much more real than this one. Uh, and you, you encounter souls of departed loved ones, encounter that divine for force, that infinitely powerful deity. And when I came back from that journey, I realized that that God loves all, that God loves Christians and Jews and Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and skeptics and atheists, that God loves all. But sometimes down in the weeds of our orthodox religious interpretations, you lose sight of the reality of that deity. But again, this is all the more reason to go into deep meditation and centering prayer and other modes of going within, silencing that little voice in our head, the voice of our ego, uh, because it is little more than that little parlor trick. As uh, uh, Michael Singer uh, puts it in his voice, uh, The Untethered Soul, his book, The Untethered Soul, he calls that voice in our head the annoying roommate. <laughs> and that's how everyone should look at that little voice. Uh, because it, that's not the mystery of consciousness. The mystery is observer within. And we all develop that observer by going into meditative states. And that's Karen is expert at uh, helping people get uh, to that, to recognizing that observer within that. And also helping to take that observer to a neutral place, kind of the position, the natural position of the higher soul, where you get that much higher view of every interaction in your life and come to realize we're all in this together, and you start to see there the power of unconditional love to bring healing to this world. And the best way to express that love of loving self is through our love for others. So love, compassion, acceptance, mercy, and forgiveness, these qualities of humanity become very important catalysts to opening us up to who we truly are, why we're here, and where this world is headed. Wow, that's... I, I don't. I had another question, a, but a, I'm going to ask amen. you a different one instead. I just say amen. <laughs> yeah. I amen that. <laughs> so, so to go back to to something you said uh, actually just a minute ago, um, I, I can't help but but notice that obviously since your experience that you have 
kind of uh, dove it into all sorts of different disciplines to, um, I'm assuming, to try to make sense of, of your experience. And right. you, you've mentioned uh, quantum mechanics and meditation and some of these other techniques. Um, I can't help but notice a little mysticism in there as well. Um, uh, upon uh, your, your transition you know, and, and uh, in, in your healing process, um, were there any of those disciplines that you felt like, yeah, they, they're, on the right, they're on the right track here? Well, what I can tell you is it became very clear to me uh, in the months after my coma, and especially after I recognized that beautiful girl on the butterfly wing, which, of course, is, comes towards the end of the story in Proof of Heaven. And that, that realization about four months after my coma hit me at a very crucial time because I was, uh, for one thing, uncovering all the evidence I needed to know the reality of that spiritual realm, which, of course, had been shown to me in my journey but I'd struggled, you know, as a neurosurgeon coming back from that, I kept trying to default to my prior worldview, and I kept trying to explain it as some vast hallucination, but that wasn't working. And then when I finally recognized that beautiful girl on the butterfly wing as the birth sister who I had never known, who had died two years before I even found out she existed, that is what shocked me into connecting all the dots and realizing that this was absolutely a mystical journey. And I often say that this is all about the union of science and spirituality, and that the deepest scientific truth I learned on that journey, as I reported in Proof of Heaven, was that love is the binding force of the universe. Mm. Now, some people hear that, and they go, wait a minute, that's not very scientific. But <laughs> I, I'm just telling you, when you get into those regions and realms and experience this directly and have the emotional power of that connection, you can't come away with it with that kind of cold-blooded, chaotic little materialist scientist view of, well, it's just the, you know, the atoms and molecules and they're just following, uh, you know, you, can, you can't do that. In fact, you cannot even succumb to uh, panpsychism. You know, panpsychism is the philosophical position that's starting to emerge uh, among philosophers of mind that basically tries to take all that we can see about the power of these spiritual journeys and tries to dumb it down to just saying, well, there are proto-consciousness elements associated with every subatomic particle. And I'm sorry, but panpsychism is a very weak, diluted-down, materialist solution that acknowledges that no one can try and fit um, the workings of mind and consciousness into the physical explanations from the brain at all. You have to give that one up. Everyone does who's in this uh, journey of discovery. Sooner or later, the more you look at for consciousness in the brain, the more you realize it's not there at all. Uh, and so this is really where we have to go, is to a much bigger understanding of mind, brain, and consciousness. And uh, again, it comes right back into the world of quantum physics, and it does involve mysticism. Now, I think the best way to put it, though, is, uh, you know, there are some scientists out there who say, we want natural solutions. You know, we want a naturalist philosophy. And what I would say is we're simply broadening our understanding of the natural world. Mm. And to do that, you simply have to admit that consciousness or spirit is absolutely fundamental. None of this stuff exists without it. Uh, so, yes, by its very nature, this becomes a spiritual journey. And for those who are still in there with the quantum physics fully at the fore, trying to explain personal experience um, based in a quantum physics-educated uh, kind of material view of the world, they'll come away simply saying, well, you cannot do it. 
uh, ignoring the spiritual nature of all this. Uh, and there's tremendous power that comes from that spiritual nature. In fact, I would say if you look at the most extraordinary healing we ever see in this world, the healing that occurs in certain near-death experiences, it occurs because of the deep role of spirituality in our very health. So if you want to have true physical, mental, and emotional health, you really have to start with spiritual health. And I would define spiritual there as really the notion that we have a purpose, that there is meaning to all this. It's not a chaotic accident. And that our consciousness is very real and has an existence in its own right that's completely independent of the physical existence of our bodies and things like that. Even though the physical body and brain is used as an expressor of consciousness in this realm, but it's not what is creating consciousness in the first place. And in fact, to achieve true health, we can do it. Uh, just as Anita Morjani was cured of her uh, very advanced lymphoma that should have held her within hours, as she reports in her book, Dying to Be Me, uh, from her uh, being taken to an emergency room back in February 2006, or as Mary C. Neal does in her book, uh, Her Journey to Heaven and Back, as an orthopedic surgeon who drowned in a kayaking accident in Chile, was underwater for more than 30 minutes, uh, and yet had a full recovery. These kind of recoveries, my recovery is... is uh, Bruce Grayson recently uncovered in, in uh, his investigation of my medical records how it really was a completely unexpected recovery that has no explanation in modern medicine. These kinds of healing are available to all people, but we have to open our minds and our reality to the spiritual nature because if we don't understand that and get the bigger purpose, we will never be able to achieve optimal healing in this incarnation. Bless it. Oh, my goodness. So, <laughs> well, there's a lot to it, but uh, the I good news it. is, you know, this kind of mindset and understanding starts to become much more comprehensive and all-inclusive of everything we know about human experience, and that is what is so refreshing, and that's why I say this awakening coming to humanity, uh, in my, from my point of view, I, I think will make tremendous progress even over the next decade, and I would doubt that any a self-respecting uh, modern intellectual sort who knows anything about science and philosophy and um, the nature of reality 10 years from now will not know that we're eternal spiritual beings all sharing the dream of that one mind. Reincarnation is absolutely real. Uh, and all of this is a much, much bigger uh, drama than I ever could have perceived before my coma with my very limited and false worldview of scientific materialism. So good. One of the things that we constantly come up uh, against on this podcast with all the different people we talk to and listeners we encounter, and John and I, myself, is that uh, one of the troubles that we all have, kind of going back to what I was talking about earlier with um, the over-rationalistic, um, trying to explain everything and always understand everything, is one of the problems that you run into with that is the problem of language itself, that language is just very clumsy. Language doesn't yeah, you know, you have trouble with language, especially when you're trying to get your head around concepts like existence, consciousness. Uh, God is one of the big ones that we have trouble with, and we're all constantly talking about on this podcast. And we, 
we always kind of say, um, you know, that language needs to be a lot of times taken as, as symbolic because the realities that language suggests are always bigger than the language itself. And with, right. the, with the whole thing that, we, that we've been talking about a little bit here on this interview, um, circling around this idea of God, but not necessarily needing to use the word God, you know, the divine, uh, maybe the theologian Paul Tillich calling it the ground of being. I was wondering if you could comment a little bit as somebody that, you know, was obviously your Harvard educated neurosurgeon, you know, you've got this uh, logical, rational furniture, but you're doing a really good job um, stretching language and, and using it. Um, and I think a lot of people might find it a little discussion on that helpful um, with some of these concepts. Could you say a little bit about uh, language and uh, the symbolic use of it around some of these big ideas? Yes, you make very good points because our language uh, is very limited. Uh, it's horribly limited. Now, of course, it does a fairly decent job of describing a trip to Disney World, but <laughs> it's not very well suited to these kind of spiritual journeys. We really need uh, a whole new set of uh, kind of linguistic concepts and faculties of mind, really, to to understand this. But again, this is why Karen and I make such a big deal of people going within. And this is why working with her in Sacred Acoustics, and for people who want to learn more, I would send them to sacredacoustics.com. That's Karen's website. Um, people can learn so much more about this by going within and experiencing it directly. Uh, in fact, I, I promise you that if you put the requisite time into this, uh, over years you will get to a point where you will have no doubt about the eternity of your soul and will certainly know what is going to transpire when your physical body comes to an end. Uh, we, can, we can get those answers through meditation and centering prayer, uh, come to know them in a very complete sense. And that's why I would encourage people uh, who want to learn more about meditation and going within and, and who say, well, I can't meditate because that monkey mind chatter in my head keeps going and going. Well, believe me, differential sound frequency brain entrainment, which is what sacred acoustics is, can be a very powerful tool because you're using differential frequency sound to intercept consciousness at a very primitive level down at a circuit that arose in our brains 200 million years or 300 million years ago, actually, when vertebrates uh, first crawled out of the muck uh, down in the lower brainstem. And we're going at that circuit to affect it and kind of modulate your consciousness, in essence, trying to set your conscious awareness free. I first was attracted to uh, sacred acoustics style, a differential frequency brain entrainment uh, about two and a half years after my coma. And it was because I wanted to duplicate what happened to me. This shock of my experience for a neurosurgeon was that as my, my brain was progressively dismantled, my neocortex was taken apart by this gram-negative bacterial meningitis, my conscious awareness actually became far greater. And so I was seeking to somehow duplicate that neutralization or monotonization of information processing in the neocortex. And I believe that the uh, sacred acoustics kind of sounds does that very readily. So people can experiment with it, find out for themselves. Uh, also, for people who want to learn more about this, I would encourage you to uh, join at evanalexander.com. We now have a 33-day uh, uh, kind of email listing uh, session course that is set up for people. It's a fully free course and includes some free sacred acoustics recordings. And it introduces 33 of the main topics that we cover in the book, Living in a Mindful Universe. So if you go to evanalexander.com and you'll see that uh, kind of spinning uh, button uh, on the right, you know, 33-day 
a journey into consciousness. Just click on that, sign up with an email address and first name, and then you are on the bandwagon to learn much more about every bit of this. And it's Yay. a big introduction to the book, uh, although the book, of course, goes much deeper. But this 33-day course really goes a long way to help people get up to speed on this. And it's all absolutely free. And it's just our gift to the world to try and help wake people up. Man, uh, we're coming a little bit short in the, you know, on time here, which I kind of can't believe because I feel like we've only been talking for like five minutes. This has been so fascinating. And, uh, and I've only got about 300 follow-up questions for you. So um, I'll be brief on the answers. <laughs> <laughs> one, one big one that I would like to end with. I don't know if John has one more question, but I, I have one more question. Uh-huh. And it's all of this, what we would call almost deconstruction, going from one worldview, seeing something that didn't fit in, doing all this wonderful exploration um, into the vastness of all of this. How, give us some ways that this has changed you in your everyday life. Well, it, I cannot tell you how just comforting, beautiful, and reassuring it is. Mm. I mean, there is a lot of fear and anxiety in our modern world. Uh, you know, they use fear at every turn in our modern media, you know, false news. Every, the whole world is just spinning down into this incredible morass of uh, kind of fake news and fear. And that's not the reality. That's not what's really happening. And so it's, it's very refreshing to have this kind of worldview that opens you up to far more optimism, first of all, about where this world is headed, but also about where my life is headed, where my understanding is headed. Uh, and this, uh, this whole journey of discovery in the almost uh, nine years now since my coma has been one that has been extremely gratifying and satisfying. And, you know, in my journey, I saw that all is well. Uh, that was, in fact, those were the first words I spoke when I came out of coma, even though I don't remember speaking them. They were, that was told to me by many, many witnesses. But when I first came out of this, uh, this coma and was trying to get my right bearings for my brain, all is well is what I said. And in many ways, that's the deepest lesson. All is well and always will be so. But we can come to know that by going within. And also realize for every one of your listeners that the most fundamental message of this is that love is what binds us all together. And I came back from my journey realizing that uh, that love, the best way to manifest it, show it, and, and dwell in it, bathe in it, enjoy it, is to be it. Karen was crucial at showing me how that really works. It's something that we talk about in many of our workshops. Uh, and that we explain in great detail in Living in a Mindful Universe, and also in that 33-day course. We get deeply into this, but that love is so crucial. I came to realize that the vast majority of the world's problems were we don't even love ourselves enough. I thought yes. the hard part was loving our enemy or our neighbor or something, but it's not even love ourselves enough that brings the, the, the trouble into this world. Mm. So it's by recovering that love, and the best way to manifest it is through love of others, and that's why manifesting uh, unconditional love, compassion, acceptance, mercy, and forgiveness are right at the core of everything that we need to do to make our lives and the lives of everyone else on this planet better. Mm. And that's why this awakening is so important. And that deepest scientific truth, just as I said in Proof of Heaven, is the binding force of unconditional love. And uh, that is, I think, probably the best message 
for each and every one of us. And at the deepest core of it all, that source that you talked about a while ago, whether you want to call it God or Allah, Brahman, Vishnu, Jehovah, Yahweh, uh, you know, native spirit, what have you, is real, absolutely real. And it's really the weeds of our orthodox religions that lead to such confusion of, of kind of dismissing and not knowing that. And that's why personal experience going within prayer and meditation are a crucial way to getting in touch with these truths. And that's what I would encourage all of your listeners to do is, is uh, join the experience, join the awakening. It's happening now. Oh, wow. So I just have one easy question for you to end on. Uh, just a fun one. Uh, because I, you know, I think at this point, if if our listeners are are listening to us in the car and haven't driven off the road, we'll we're in good shape. So <laughs> we are going to need to put a warning before the beginning. Yeah, you should probably be sitting comfortably in your home. Yeah, listening no, to this no, one. no treadmilling. That's what I recommend. No, tre- no treadmilling. That's right. John and I have both fallen off the treadmills, getting our minds blown on podcasts before. That is that is absolutely true. <laughs> um. So so the last question, because I know this this is kind of a fun one that I know people are probably wondering. We have specifically um, a lot of a lot of Christian listeners, um, or at least former Christian listeners. Um, and, and a lot of what you're saying, uh, sounds a lot like, you know, like New Testament, you know, theology, you know, when Jesus was asked by, by, uh, um, the, the Pharisees, you know, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love God, uh, and love, love your neighbor, you know? Um, so, so when, when you had your experience, did you have any sense of, uh, you know, uh, Jesus, you know, in, in the afterlife or even any sense of, uh, of a hell or any, any, uh, any feeling that that might exist or is it all just pretty much, um, you know, being in the presence of, of this, uh, divine figure? I'm glad you asked an easy one. Well, <laughs> it, 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 yeah. it turns out, uh, I often say that, you know, if you really had to come up with a religious system that best fits where we're going with all this, it would be the original Christianity. Uh, that of love and of compassion, of, of loving all others uh, unconditionally. Uh, now, I would throw in there that I also realized from everything else in the scientific study that reincarnation is absolutely part of this. And we don't have time to go into that, but, uh, you know, the, the, what I grew up with in my Methodist church in North Carolina, you know, eternal heaven or hell, one incarnation, made zero sense after my coma. Mm. Absolutely <laughs> zero. Um, and also, I'm very quick to point out that I would say that the original teachings of the prophets are, for the most part, in agreement. So I would say Christ, of course, uh, 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 a prophet beyond all measure, Mm. but the same message came from Buddha, compassion. Uh, The same message came from Muhammad uh, in in knowing an all-merciful God. Uh, And that I, I would say it was really the interpretation of various religions that has gotten us in so much trouble. Mm. And if we just stick with the original message of the prophets. And from my point of view, the purest message uh, could be considered to be that of Christ. But the reason I don't, um, or I often try and separate uh, that a little bit is so many people want to use that as a battle cry. Right. So mm. many people want to say, well, it's Christ's way or the highway. You know, if you don't accept Christ into your heart, then you can't get to heaven. Well, that's not true. Mm. If live a Christian life, if you show love and compassion for all fellow beings, show mercy for all fellow beings. That is the way to become one with that all-loving God. Mm-hmm. It's not a dogmatic system 
or trying to talk the talk and claim some allegiance without walking the walk. That is what is so important. And I can't stand the way that some people try and use that as a battle cry. Yes. Um, you know, that tends to divide us. I would say that to the extent that any religion today uh, uh, talks about oneness, love, mercy, that we're all in this together, we're here to help each other, we're all here to survive and, and, and just make all of our lives as, as good as they can be through love and compassion and kindness, then that is a feature of that religion that um, warrants a progression. Whereas any part of a religion that starts talking about one-upsmanship and a hierarchy and we're better than, that dooms that religion to fail completely when this awakening occurs. So I hope I make that crystal clear. You did. Uh, and we're happy you did. Yes. <laughs> that was fantastic. Uh, Thank you so much. Um, before we let you go, uh, where, what's the best place for people to go stay on top of your work? And of course, we want them to go get the, the new book, which will be out actually the day this episode airs. So October 17th, um, I highly recommend you go out and grab the new book, so uh, Living in a Mindful Universe. And pick up the other two books, The Map of Heaven and Proof of Heaven are extraordinary as well. So you can hear more of the backstory. But uh, what's, what's the easiest way for people to follow you and, and follow well, your work? The best thing, people can go to evanalexander.com. And in fact, what I would encourage your readers who are interested to do is go to evanalexander.com right now and sign up for the 33-day course. They can start that course anytime they want to. Uh, it's a companion to the book. It's kind of a workbook companion, but we're offering it for free. Now, it doesn't give every bit of the information in the book, obviously, but it gives a lot. And it, it, it's a tremendous gift to this world if you try that 33-day program, uh, A Journey to Consciousness. I think you'll see what I mean. Also, I highly recommend people who want to start getting into some deep and profound meditation, go to sacredacoustics.com. That's Karen Newell's website. Uh, I use Sacred Acoustics meditations an hour or two every day. I've been doing that for more than seven years. And uh, they are absolutely crucial to so much of my ongoing understanding of the spiritual realms. Uh, and again, you don't have to have an NDE to know every bit of this. You simply have to have a form of going in and of realizing the little voice in your head, the voice of the ego, and all the fear and anxiety is nothing more than a little parlor trick. Pay it no mind. Develop your observer self within your higher soul, and that is something you can do through sacred acoustics. Dude, so good. This has been just a joy, a delight and joy. I can't wait to listen to this episode again because I think I've probably already forgotten like a million great things that you said because there's so much here, so... <laughs> I hope, well, people, I hope people aren't driving right now. I hope, you know, <laughs> pause, sit down, really digest this, listen to it over again. Go to ebonalexander.com, sign up for the course. This is good stuff. Well, it's, it's where the world is headed. That's all I can say. Agreed. Cannot agree more. Uh, thank you so much for coming on again. And uh, um, I feel like we have to have you back so we can go a little deeper. Uh, even I feel like there's a million questions we still have left to ask. But oh, yes, um, well, well, that that would be great, and I, I would love to come back. And maybe we could even do it with my partner Karen Newell, my oh, co-op. That'd be great. Yes. she uh, an absolute uh, fount of wisdom in a spiritual and all kinds of practical sense and everything else. So uh, I really appreciate. Uh, uh, you know, John and Adam, this has been a real joy being with you, and hopefully we can do it again. So just keep in touch, and we'll try and set that up. Definitely. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Grace and peace to you. All right. Well, thanks a lot. 
Take care, and we'll talk soon. All right. Extremely unqualified to debrief on this one. That there have been a couple episodes uh, with a couple guests like Catherine Keller and oh, um, yeah. Dr. Newberg yep. and and some some people like that who uh, just rocked our socks off. Yeah, and and there are moments where like I I, I I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I'll, I'll be the first one to tell you that. But you're but up there, John. You're I can there. hang for the most part with most. Like I dabble in a lot of different subject matter, and I can hang for the most part. Yeah, like. You know, a cocktail party, like yeah. that level. Yeah. But, like, there were some moments where I got to be honest, where I'm like, what is he talking about? Wow. I need to go brush up on my quantum physics. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wait, dude, for me, it was just um, the way that he had this all-encompassing just narrative, just piecing all of these seemingly disparate ideas all together in some sort of fabric of <laughs> understanding. Yeah. To the point that he was literally talking, jumping from concepts of faith and day-to-day life and what is consciousness to what are concepts of God to quantum physics <laughs> yeah. to contemplation to... And you could tell it was all just... He wasn't reading off notes. Like, he wasn't... No. These weren't talking points. From, this was literally just, like, internalized stuff. Yeah. And it, and it, the thing that I really enjoyed about it is that I've been working through some ideas for for a future blog um, post or whatever, just about the idea of the concept that God is love and and unconditional love, and the fact that we can't really wrap our brains around that. Right, like we have to filter everything through our our human uh, senses and our mm-hmm. and our human constructs, you know, yep. because it's our only way to understand things. Right, and and so metaphor. like metaphor analogy, exactly, right, right. right. You know, like when we talk about what what uh, Richard Rohr calls the uh, transrational or the non-rational, completely the things that you can only speak about in metaphor. And so, when he got into talking about how, like, in through his experience, that that the divine is just this overwhelming, pulsing sense of just love and grace and forgiveness that is that is accessible to anyone, regardless of your of your upbringing, your background, your your religion, or whatever. I thought. Man, I hope he's right. Oh, dude, me too. I was so with you on that. There was a hopefulness and um, a harmony to the things that he was saying that were very alluring. Yeah. Very, very, very alluring. And then when you throw in the fact that he's got this trump card that he can play, that it's like, oh, I died. (laughs) And I saw it all. Did you die, Adam? (laughs) And I'm a Harvard neurosurgeon. Yeah. You want to, you got anything? It's just like, I'm just going (laughs) to shut up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he. This is this is one that like I'm even having trouble debriefing with you. I've got his book sitting right in front of me. We yeah. just did the episode, and I, this is a tough one. Like, yeah, I'm so glad we did it. I need to listen to this episode and digest some more of his work about probably four or five more times <laughs> yeah. before I could really debrief yeah. about this. I can't even talk.
I mean, it's 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 difficult for a number of reasons. Number one, it's really late, and we've already done two interviews before this. But aside from that, <laughs> you have steam rolling off the top of your head right now. I know. I'm so <laughs> ready to eat dinner. But um, that was me. Sorry, oh. I bumped the bumped the table. But Don't do that. I'm sorry. <laughs> We're such professional podcasters. But um, but yeah, I, I thought this was an absolutely fascinating topic to discuss. It's it's kind of. Um, some might consider like a fringe type topic, but it, it completely, uh, completely relates to, um, to the mystery and the aura yes. and the, um, and, and that just that realm that we talk about of just the unknowing and the ambiguity of, you know, we, we can't really describe God. No one really knows what happens after you die. Right. Um, and so maybe who knows, maybe that's just God's way of giving us a little glimpse into, what happens to the soul after? Do you know what though, man? I, I think you're right. I think that people would label this fringe, and I think that's dismissive and sure. extremely unfair. Right? Because if you reframe this whole conversation that we just had, and we put it under the realm of mysticism, mm-hmm. which we all love, mysticism super hot right now. Like Hansel, so hot right now. Yeah. Like Zoolander. I mean, it's like, oh yeah, this is the in thing to talk about. And it's okay, even though it's less, you know, about empirical data or proven science or things like that. Sure, there's neoplasticity studies and sure, you know, Science Mike talks a lot about the benefits of this, that, or the other thing. Or, you know, we had Andrew Newberg on. But oh, when you come to near-death experiences from a Harvard neurosurgeon, we're all going to get our, you know, skeptical pants on. Sure. That's not fair. Because when we talk about mysticism being experiential, it's something that you experience, right? That's what we're working with here. Um, we just happen to travel into the very, very deep weeds of, of a lot of language and, and other science that goes along with this. But I think that this conversation, near-death experience, what happens when we die, um, as a way of talking about life. Yeah, you know, I think that's what I like about Eben Alexander is his approach is to talk less about death and what happens later. Right. And more about that's not even a really important question. Right. Um, what's going on right now is exactly what he's focused on, which I think is the most beautiful thing about his work. Isn't that fascinating? So it's fascinating. Like, yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I died. But how are you living right now? Right now. It's like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Now that's interesting. And, and to your point, you know, we, we, we have fun. Uh, talking theoretical physics and 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 talking with scientists who are who are theorizing how the universe works and how right. there's this stuff called dark matter and dark energy that we don't really understand, but right. it makes up most of the universe. Most of the universe, ninety five percent of the universe. Yeah, and at the center of you know the galaxy is uh, every, 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 excuse me, supermassive black hole. Yeah, super. Yeah, black holes at the center of every galaxy, and within those black holes. Uh, it could be other universes. Yeah. And so we can theorize about things like this, but then it's crazy to think that maybe the soul or consciousness transcends into other planes of existence. But we can it. also talk about dimensions and how it. other dimensions might exist, but no, we can't talk about how the right. soul oh, might... No, 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 now we're getting fringy. Yeah. Now we're getting fringy. And, that, and you know what? You're calling it out. And I, yeah. and I think it should be called out. And that's why I think that this guy needs to be heard. And this way of thinking about life needs to be considered absolutely it's what we do love it man what we do well happy uh early halloween yes uh you're really going to want to buckle up next week uh <laughs> let me should just we, say should we give him a homework assignment for before next week yeah you should, should watch the movie you should go watch the movie the right the right r-i-t-e, R-I-T-E. with anthony hopkins 
and then uh, just prepare yourself for next week's episode. I will say, uh, I'm going to try to dig it up. It's it's buried somewhere in our email, and I'm so sorry, but there was a listener who listened to our, our uh, October series last year yeah. who actually suggested this guest. And so I want to thank, I believe it was a him, uh, for this suggestion. And again, I'll try to give credit where credit is due if I can find it, but we did get this particular guest um, a, as a suggestion. Fantastic. And fascinating. It's another one where, you know, again, I don't know where I believe and you may, <laughs> and you may not know where you stand with it either, but I think it's an interesting topic and it's, um, it, it's timely around Halloween and it'll oh, be yeah. fun to, fun to discuss. So watch the right. R-I-T-E. Don't let your kids listen to it though. No, not next week. Or don't let them watch the right either. Yeah. You should probably not do that either. Yeah, probably not, <laughs> Unless your kids are 18 or over. Uh, well, as always, Thank you guys so much for listening. We, we hope you, you found this interesting. Um, and again, our uh, brand new website that we forgot to mention at the top of the show. Because we suck at that. Uh, go to www.thedeconstructionist.com. Um, it is now a one-stop shop. You can connect to us on social media. Um, if you want to pick up a t-shirt or a pint glass, we have brand new t-shirt designs on there, including the the timely Halloween t-shirt, the exploding mind-blown cheddar skull. Yeah, I love that. Uh, it's been quite popular lately. A lot of people seem to dig that one. So because it's awesome, thank awesome. You. Thank you, Jason Turner. I will ship one to your house if you want. Uh, but you can also uh, you can connect to our blog on there. We should have by the time this uh, episode airs at least one guest uh, blogger. And uh, you can also link to us if you want to support us. If you like what we're doing, we do have a Patreon campaign where we will ship you goodies. Yep. Uh, in exchange for for your loyal support. Um, so thank you for everyone who's already. Uh, donate even if it's a dollar. You oh, guys have so, no idea. You guys what are that means showing to us. up for us, and we love you for it. We've got so many supporters now, and it's so uh, in, di- in crazy different countries. Yes, it's amazing. So, Thank you, and and we will. Uh, I promise you, um, all those hard-earned dollars that you guys are donating um, are are going to be uh, put back into this podcast in ways that we can't quite talk about yet. But um, we're going to make it worth your while. Something's brewing. Yeah, a couple Something, things. Something's brewing. In addition to the to the prizes that are coming out to all of you guys. Yes. So keep tuned. Uh, stay, stay with us on social media. And uh, we love you very much. We'll we talk love, to you next week. We love you very much. <laughs> we love you very much. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson. Keep deconstructing, guys. Keep deconstructing, guys.